Welcome to Death Readers. I'm Doug. I'm Rob. This is episode 130 of Death Readers, the podcast where Rob and I share our thoughts and notes with each other on the books we're reading for the first time. If this is your first time listening, we suggest reading Red Dragon from chapter 17 through chapter 26 before listening to this episode. That way you too can follow along. Hey, Rob. Yeah. Who wrote Red Dragon? That'd be Thomas Harris. Weird. That's, that, that's how we're going to put that in there. Um, <laughs> Look at you. Okay, Getting so clever. do you have, do we have any uh, housekeeping? Nah, we don't have no housekeeping. <laughs> we keep a ship shape house. Okay, okay. Uh, no clutter here. Do you call it a captain's quarters or the captain's cabin? Ooh. I think I lean towards quarters. I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. It just occurred to me that I was thinking, like, if you call it a cabin, that's kind of like calling it a house. I think it, I think I think you're right. I think it's the difference between house and a home. Mm. It's 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 that room is the captain's quarters, but the captain will or that room is the captain's cabin, but the captain will be in his quarters. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like there's there could be more than one room. Sure. In the cabin. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that was a weird tangent. Um, well, if there is no housekeeping, we can just start this episode off and just just get going, hit the ground running. Just do it. I can even stop introducing the concept of doing it. You seem like you're hesitant. Just do is there it. anything you want to talk about? No, I just feel like there should always be for some reason, and there isn't, and I feel oh, awkward Oh, it's about one it. of those, one of those, you got to grade yourself, you got to do your own performance review, but nobody gives themselves a five. You have to do a four, because there's got to be room for improvement, or you're fired. Situations? Yeah. Yeah. Are you firing me? See me after the podcast. We need to have a talk. All right, well, that's not going to impact my performance. Okay, well, um, if there's no more housekeeping and if I'm under review, I'll be on my best behavior. Rob, what does that bring us to? Chapter 17. These, it, it, they don't have titles. And it just, I know this is the like fourth Was episode. Was I supposed to be making titles? I did not. You were, uh, uh, there was one period of time where we had an idea that you could and that would be yeah. fun and then you never did. Well, it's because we took such a long break between No, recordings. that's not it. Because we didn't take no, no, that's not it. We didn't take a break between recording episode one and two, and you didn't do it between those two. So, I think we did take a break between one and two. Even if we did, it was not nearly as much of a break. Well, I mean, listen, I'm just gonna take it down in your performance review. Shit. Um, (laughs) you fire me, well, I fire you. Has a problem with remembering simple tasks. Okay, chapter 17 doesn't have a title. Summary. Crawford consults Dr. Bloom on Will Graham's psychology and suggests the best way to catch the Tooth Fairy is to use Will and Freddie Lowndes as bait. That's pretty much what happens. That is pretty much what happens. Uh, I have a couple notes in this chapter, though. Do you have any? Oh, for a change. Of course I've got notes. Why don't you go first? You, you never go first anymore. Uh, I mean, uh, I only go first... Being that this is part of my review, I, I I like to choose when to go first when it's appropriate. Uh, I'm the kind of generous coworker who wouldn't step on someone's toes when it's okay. I'll go first. They... <clears throat> Mine, mine's on page one ninety four. I don't. I know you don't care about pages, but 
Uh, I like Jack's uh, casualness about using psychology to kill the tooth fairy via suicide. I thought that is pretty casual. That it was. It it just. I'm not saying I I I agree with it, and I I am like minded. I'm just saying. It's interesting when characters don't mince words about an opinion, and he was very forthright with that one. I'm just like, okay. Rob, if you could convince anyone to kill themselves, who would you convince? I'd rather not say. This is a safe space. <laughs> it's not a safe space. This is this going out to the public. Conversation. I, w- I will say this. I would never do such a thing, nor use my powers for such evil. Listener, if you take the third letter in each one of the words Rob said in that sentence, it'll spell out his choice. I don't think there was a T in there at all. <laughs> um, do you have any more notes? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have a note on page 194. Okay. My note here is, would, would Thomas Harris have us, the readers, believe that people in the Red Dragon world, in Will Graham, Jack Crawford's world, actually believe in psychics? I, you know what? That did cu- uh, catch my eye. I feel, but well, this is again kind of like your marijuana comment from the last episode. We we can really only go with uh, media we've consumed since we don't have any primary right. sources, you know, detectives with us right now from the seventies. But I kind of feel they were more open to it back then. Yeah, I I I guess that's kind of what I gleaned from it too. The idea that maybe in the seventies, the idea of using a police psychic or a psychic consultant wasn't laughable right it wasn't it wasn't the tv show psych right um, the scene i think that you're referring to is when jack is trying to get from dr bloom how will could be so perceptive and bloom says something like well i don't think he's psychic if that's what you're asking yeah which exactly. immediately says that that's a reasonable thing he could have suggested exactly that's 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 i really should have done better job of like prefacing it like you just did but i po- i post fisted yeah um <laughs> But it uh, that's exactly why I raised the question is because it does seem like at some point it, it suggested that that wouldn't be fucking stupid. Yeah, the first line. Um, do you think he's psychic? Is that it? No, he's an edetaker. Uh, I I Idetaker. Idetaker. Well, let's just say we'll probably come back to that word later in the podcast. He's an idetaker. He has a remarkable visual memory, but I don't think he's psychic. He wouldn't let Duke test him. That doesn't mean anything, though. He hates to be prodded and poked, so do I. Yeah, so there's that, so, that was where my my note comes in, is this idea that, like, if we're to believe that there are there's literal supernatural shit happening in this world, then that kind of changes a whole lot. It, it puts it firmer, firmer in the Stephen King realm, which is not what I wanted or expected to read. So there was apparently a parapsychology laboratory at Duke started in the 30s. And this was around the time when, you know, James Randi had his psychic uh, contest going or just starting its genesis. Um, So it was a big thing where they would have it was reasonable to say you could study psychic phenomena. Uh, Yeah, like in Ghostbusters. Like in Ghostbusters. Absolutely. Do you think? Bill Murray would. Do you think if Bill Murray, what's what's Bill Murray? Vinkman. Vinkman. Doctor Peter, Peter Vinkman. Do you think if Vinkman was testing Will Graham alongside that lady, 
do you think he, Will Graham would have been able to read that that was happening? Yes. Yes, I do. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that That's the least exciting mashup I can imagine. <laughs> um... My next note. Okay. Page uh, 196. Uh, there's a quote here. I think it's about Will Graham. Let me see if I can find it first before I just start talking out of my side of my mouth. All right. I'm going to start on page 195 and just read a little selection so that my – this is what I should have done last note. Then my note will have more context so the reader, listener can understand. I'm not sure you know what you're asking. I think um, that's Dr. Bloom. Advice. That's what I'm asking. I think that's Crawford. I don't mean from me, Dr. Bloom said. What you're asking from Graham. I don't want you to misinterpret this, and normally I wouldn't say it, but you ought to know. What do you think one of Will's strongest drives is? Crawford shook his head. It's fear, Jack. The man deals with a huge amount of fear. Because he got hurt? No, not entirely. Fear comes with imagination. It's a penalty. It's the price of imagination. And that, I thought that that was a deeply insightful bit of, bit of line, bit of writing. It is. Uh, because, I agree. I almost wrote it down myself. Because it's, it's, well, sure you did. Um, <laughs> I, let me rephrase. I imagine you did. <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, I think about like, like, like that, that concept It's it's so, it's so brilliantly and beautifully simple, but it's so true. Like that's what makes like campfire stories so terrifying is you put someone in, in the dark and you tell them to imagine something and mm -hmm. they can't and be and they're sort of stimulated to be put in a situation where they can do nothing but imagine and they, cause they can't see much. They they're stuck. It's why being afraid of the dark, I think is so powerful because you can imagine there being something out there that you can't see that's out to get you. Interesting. I mean, I agree with you, absolutely, but I also um, took a more practical view of what that meant, which is just if you are gifted with a very strong imagination, you're often going to be like at a crossroads in your mind and unable to make a decision because you're afraid of all possible consequences. Yeah, as someone who I feel like is afflicted with this uh, brilliant imagination, I uh, I definitely... Thank you. I, I am um, glad you've noticed. Well, it's, it's my own self-reflection is one of my greatest strengths. Um <laughs> The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, like I've definitely been driven to an action by the fear of my own imagination. <laughs> driven to it. I set up shop at inaction. <laughs> yeah. It's, I live it's... at the corner of inaction and I can't even come up with another word because I might pick the wrong one. <laughs> um, it's, it's something that's like, it's one of those things that holds you back and it's, it's the idea of like, it's, I, I actually thought of it in a, in conjunction with another famous quote about fear is okay. that, that like, if, if fear comes with imagination, fear is the penalty. It's the price of imagination. If all of that is true, which I, uh, I would say it is. And if it's also simultaneously true that fear is the mind killer, then does not that create sort of a circular repetitive sort of loop of 
imagining and in action. Yeah, I would say so. An Ouroboros of brain activity. But, but also just imagination like is the mind freer enlivener further. sure <laughs> freer that also works <laughs> enlivener so is totally so a you're real word kind of always going up and down because of that it's a it's a symbiotic dance no a parasitic da- it's a not it's a it's a will wow. or won't uh jesus oh <laughs> uh, oh uh, what was uh it's an it's it's, audio medium. It's a, it's a waltz between brain concept thingies. Oh, okay. And there is your third great quote about fear. They come in threes. Man, I wish someone would transcribe that and put it on a t-shirt. That would be fucking hard to contextualize. Okay, so... Yeah, I just it just it just struck me as like I feel like both of those things are true, and they both kind of like I feel like you can use both those quotes. I I feel like I could use both those quotes in my in my everyday life to remind myself to basically just stop being afraid. I think that both can do it. Like, mm-hmm. fear is the mind killer is something that I I've been like since the Dune movie came out. I've been trying to remind myself that it's not as stupid as it sounds. Like, right. I keep thinking about it like as like a, a deeply insightful element of that film that is or that story that is uh, worth remembering because I'm not breaking any new fucking ground by saying this, but so forgive me for treading well-tread ground. But if you think about like what you're doing when you hold yourself back from doing something because you're worried or you're anticipating something that's mm-hmm. like going to happen, you're, you're like willfully holding yourself back from, both the possibility of success and failure. And I think if you can trick yourself or train yourself to like, remember that that's happening when it's happening, you might be able to get over it. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes for the idea of that, like how fear is the price of imagination is like, if you can center yourself by remembering, Oh, Oh, right. I'm not really, I shouldn't be afraid right now. I'm just being extra imaginative. (laughs) If I can be imaginative, if I can be imaginative enough to imagine a catastrophe i should be able to imagine a success so how do i get from here to success and then imagine that path and then take it the last one that i here's here's the third one fear is insanity you can to to be afraid of something that isn't a present danger is kind of crazy because if you center yourself and live in the now Worrying about something that's coming in the future or could possibly come in the future is living in a fantasy world. Like you're you're pretending that 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 potential risk and danger is real and present now. So like that's true to do that or or in the past, like something you've already dealt with. It's in the past. Sure. It's not hurting you now. To 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 dwell on it and to focus on it feels like it it's it's again not super productive and. If you can, if you can get yourself on that level to see it and and, and remind yourself of one of listen, I'm talking to myself. If I can remind myself <laughs> of one of those three things anytime I'm feeling intimidated or nervous about trying to do something risky or trying to do something that I'm afraid of, then it might help me like overcome it somehow. 
And I just thought it was interesting how like this one part of this this book triggered that like sort of cascading effect of these three sort of mantras. I should give credit. I heard I heard the third one, fears insanity from Will Sasso. A lot of wills com- involved here. Com- comedic actor. Yeah, he's a smart guy. Will Sasso. So yeah, it, uh, uh, Will Graham and uh, Will Dune. Will Will Dune. Okay. Uh, yes, and. Um, uh, and and the uh, the result of the of the <laughs> a side effect of some of the worst screams or the worst fears the Wilhelm scream. There you go. And good job not letting fear stop you from saying that. Yeah, I should have as much as it should have. <laughs> it really should have stopped me from saying that because I oh man did I it was not worth it. Whoa! Oh, here we go. Nope, that's not gonna work either. He's imagining right now all the outcomes. Yeah, I'm gonna stop myself for I for all I... of your angry emails. <laughs> um, okay. Do you have any more notes in this chapter? You know, actually, I don't. All right. Uh, bring us to the next chapter, Rob. Chapter eighteen. There you go. Summary. Will partners with Freddy to publish an article that'll serve as a map for the killer to find Graham. Subtle information like his hotel's location is included as bait while Jack and the FBI set a trap for the Tooth Fairy. Will prepares himself for the coming conflict and bids farewell to his wife and stepson before keeping them in the dark about the risks of his plan and lying about where he'll be for the next week. Oh, Willie. Uh, I have a note on page 206. I only have two notes, and they're both quotes. You should just go. Mine's probably longer. The first one just amused me because it felt like Thomas Harris was out of his depth a little bit. Um, and that was like karate students at an anatomy lecture. Yeah. I think he was kind of applying his Thomas Harris poetic grasp of observation to things. But that one just, I was just like, I see what you're doing, but it's awkward. But I know karate sweeping the country at this time, but it's, it just amused me. Leg sweeping. Um, oh. The, uh, yeah, I felt like that was, I, I don't know, I kind of, I don't know if I had a, I, I think I noted that one too. I mean, I, I you know, I, te- I just didn't take the note. I just knew, I thought about taking the note before sure. you did. And right. like, you know, I should oh, Absolutely, because you read this before I did. I did. I didn't. Of course, I've read this but... before you read it, so maybe I took that note years ago. Uh I didn't. You'd be the, the one to know. Anyway, so, <laughs> but but I do think that there's, if you're trying to make comparison between something that you are being disrespectful for in terms of what it takes mentally to something that you are lauding as being a high art of intellect, which I think is what he's trying to do, uh, you could pick better subjects. Yeah. Um, like, I think that's the problem that I, it felt like a kind of like a, like a bump on a smooth surface. Like if you're, if you're like going across something and you feel a bump, and like if you were ice skating and mm-hmm. there was a bubble in the lake or whatever surface you're on, you'd be like, Hmm, that's weird. <laughs> that's not uh that was an interruption that shouldn't right. have been here. Right. 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 And Thomas Harris, that's how you do a simile. The, cause I would imagine if someone is taking karate, uh, an, is anatomy, right? They're gonna know where. Well, because the anatomy chart's hit, gonna show you where to take to, to, to hit someone your victim. or like yeah. like where yeah like where you have like nerve clusters or pressure points and chi chakras. 
Sorry. No, I mean that's you. You're not. You don't need to be sorry. You're embodying uh, the attitude against karate in the late seventies. You're just. You're just. You're a creature of pure empathy. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's that's what you're... <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. Um, my other quote, uh, which I liked a lot more and felt it was also insightful, was Sunday and Monday passed in a curiously jerky time. The minutes dragged and the hours flew. Hmm. And I felt that quite often. That is <laughs> hard. It's, I found it hard to articulate articulate until I read that. Now that you've re-articulated it, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, my, my two, two bits from this chapter. I like. Well, I've got a pretty long note here on two o six. Lay it on to me. So you remember when we were talking about in like the first episode about the idea that the the dragon's blood fingerprint powder was like I thought was like too on the nose as mm-hmm. like a fake name for a thing. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of looked it up and it was like, well, not only is red powder real, but apparently like it, well, at least that opens up the idea that dragon's blood as a brand name could have been a real thing at the time even if it isn't now um and i subsequently found out it was in fact a real name yes okay thank you i couldn't i couldn't remember that but yes you did okay well page show six on my in my copy when will's discussing which brand of bulletproof vest to use Jax suggests using second chance right so I was really surprised to hear that name because I'm vaguely familiar with that brand. Oh, um, the guy who invented second chance body armor is a former Marine and a former pizza delivery driver named Richard Davis, who famously shot three armed robbers in self-defense during a delivery. After which (laughs) he thought, to himself, something like, well, excuse me, well, I easily survived that, but I would have felt better if I knew bullets couldn't kill me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Tell and me so more, he, Richard. So Richard? he, th- yeah, so then, I think so, let me double check my note. Yeah, Richard Davis. Okay. So then he invents this Kevlar body armor company, or creates this company, invents this this suit. Probably made multi-millions of dollars, uh, especially if he's like, if he was so well circulated that he is the name brand they reference in this book Mm -hmm. but but that isn't the only reason he's famous because there are plenty of people out there who invent things that many industries know or use but like you have no idea who made them right and then there's that then there's that like elon musk level where like the person who invented the thing or is the spokesperson to the face of the product becomes sort of a mini celebrity on their own Uh uh-huh Richard Davis is kind of that. Really? Yeah, because he got some sort of internet famous after videos that he, promotional videos he had produced in the 80s and 90s resurfaced, like VHSs resurfaced and and, and got popular and got lots of views on the internet. In these videos, uh, Davis would shoot cars with really big guns and like set them on fire and just unload ungodly amounts of bullets into these cars on like ranches somewhere in like the country. Mm -hmm. He would like cut meat 
like hang big slabs of meat and cut them with swords and shit. <laughs> and the thing he he most famously did, I, I'll say, is that he would shoot himself on camera. He would shoot himself in the chest while wearing his own body armor. While wearing okay, his, his, that makes his, a little more sense. <laughs> his brand of body armor, at least once a year on his birthday, he made it like a tradition to fuck around and like shoot himself in the chest every birthday to be like, well, I'm glad I'm still alive. <laughs> and sometimes he would just do it on camera and be like, I'm going to do this bang. And I'm like, well, I'm still here. So, so this is a point blank. He's holding the gun himself. Yeah. It's not a, yeah. a setup. Well, y- yes. Yes. It, it's not, it's not, I, sorry, not, not set up. It's not somebody else holding the gun stage with in front of a camera. It's just kind of a yeah. selfie kind of situation. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So yeah, he's a fucking nut job. It, is he still alive? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I kind of imagine so. But you can find these videos on YouTube if you search him up. Probably search up Second Chance Body Armor or uh, Richard Davis, and you'll find a handful of of maybe maybe not a handful, but you'll find videos, long videos of him doing weird fucking shit, like with guns and kevlar vests so it was kind of uh is the word prescient uh to see him the the see the brand in this book published in 1981 right so far away from the fucking internet so far away from youtube Mm -hmm. and to see this guy who would like or his brand show up in this book was just kind of it it, like took me out of it but it was also like like oh yeah uh this thing exists wow holy shit so anyway, that's fun. And I think proof that Thomas Harris just likes to do his research. I think I mean, it's impressive. It's impressive to make to see like that level of like, I mean, I don't I maybe it's impressive because I'm not familiar with that world. I think that's sure. probably it. Well, like, I, I feel like a lot of people just make shit up. That's true. It's, it's there's no reason to just say to, to not just say Coca soda instead of, you know, Coca-Cola or whatever. Right. Um, Dr. Pepper he talks about Dr. Pepper in this book. He does. And uh, the those gel tab things, the die gels, die gels, yeah. Product placement, yeah. All right, well that's all I had for that. All right. Well that brings us to chapter nineteen. Summary: This is a short chapter, wherein Dollarhide buys the newest copy of the Tatler from a newsstand in Saint, in the St. Louis airport. He justifies his rudeness to the merchant as part of his becoming. Once home, he clips the tattler and brings an old wheelchair up from the basement and oils its wheels. I have a feeling this was a three-page chapter for me. It's my memory. It's about, about that. That sounds right. I don't have any. No- I mean, I have no in, notes. In, in retrospect, I can say, oh, okay, I see what's happening. But like yeah. uh, at the time, there was nothing worth talking about. It's menacing. It, it reminds me of uh, the character in No Country for Old Men. Yeah. The uh, interaction with the vendor. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing specifically. It it got us to the next part. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is chapter 20 summary (laughs) as Freddie Lowndes returns to the Tadler's office. He's abducted by Dolorhide in his basement. The great red dragon. And I think it's his basement. I honestly have no idea where they actually are. I think that's not, I think it's reasonable. Um, though to, to assume that. Yeah. He was had the, the setup of the slides. Right. 
In his basement, the Great Red Dragon intimidates and frightens Lowndes into repenting for his printed lies. Dolorhide promises to uh, let Lowndes go if he prints no more lies. Lowndes agrees, but before he's released, Dolorhide bites off the journalist's lips. This is some terrifying chapter. <laughs> it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, this is it's this is graphic. This is we haven't seen anything graphic for a while, and then it's all here, and you're like, oh my god. Yeah. Um, but I see. Uh, we come back to some slug mucus. We do. Well, so this is after he's given Freddy the slideshow, right? And he says, uh, "We should clarify what the slideshow is." Oh, the slideshow is pictures of Mrs. Leeds and Mrs. Jacoby alive, and then dead. And then pictures of Freddie Lowndes uh, intimating he's going to continue the pattern. Right. Your life to mine is a slug track on stone, a thin silver mucus track in and out of the letters on my monument. And then a little farther down, your readers follow you like a child follows a slug track with his finger. Back to your shallow skull and potato face as a slug follows his own slime back home. Before me, you are a slug in the sun. I think that's it. But it just reminds me of the two businessmen talking and their comment about a slug trail earlier. Ew. And it just makes me wonder if uh, Thomas Harris doesn't like slugs. Does anyone? <laughs> just uh, The French? Purely, they like to eat them. And also, isn't that snails? Yeah, it's the same thing. Well, shell and no shell, my friend. I mean, one's it's got a little more calcium in its diet. I mean, one has a house and one's homeless itinerant interesting he uh yeah so he uh shows him the thing the the images and then promises to let him go and then out of somewhere out of uh, it seems like out of nowhere just is like yeah and i'm also gonna bite your lips off and then he bites his lips off well i think that was set up with the baggie the empty bag that was labeled with these he offended me (laughs) yeah i didn't notice that but also wouldn't he have offended him with his fingers that's what i was thinking i thought fingers were gonna go in there but then he bit off the lips it occurs to me that Freddy epoxy to the chair was could have been inspiration for the uh, color wheel in the TV show, with all the people shellacked and sewn together. Yeah, and had they you know each tried to break out of their the eye of God skin. Yeah, it was a uh... yeah. And then overall, I just thought this chapter was a fantastic representation of mounting dread because you feel Freddy kind of giving up hope, and it's. Oppressive. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about it? Definitely a scary um, uh, situation to imagine yourself in. Mm. Uh, uh, Because I think the the goal, obviously, so uh, round of applause, you succeeded, Tommy. (laughs) No, I don't have anything else in that chapter. I'm done, too. All right. Uh, Advance us, good sir. Chapter 21. Summary. This chapter is three pages long, so forgive me if this summary is brief. Dolorhide returns Freddy to the Tattler, immolated in a wheelchair, but not before Lowndes got a brief but memorable look at Dolorhide's license plate. I have no notes. Nope, I just wrote well shit. Uh, I mean, I, I was glad to know that that was something that was, again, alluded to in the show mm-hmm. successfully and, and and done well. Uh, they totally did it differently, but yeah. They did, but... That's what made it so good in the show. That's true. Because if you had read this, you would have definitely 
had a surprise. That's true. Um, all right. So anyway, uh, we can move on to chapter twenty-two. Summary: Freddie Lounds burn wounds prove fatal. Jack and Will sit with him in the emergency room as he dies. That's pretty much it. <laughs> it's pretty much it. Uh, except Freddie completely understands that Will upped the ante on purpose by putting his hand on him. That and that calls part Will was... out on it. Yeah. The. Uh... Oh, I guess that's that, that, that comes that's up in the next chapter. Next but this chapter. is where it's said. But this is where right. it's said. I think it's said in the next chapter too. But it's fine. Are you sure? I have a l- exact page note in the next chapter for where I have a note about that subject. Uh, we'll get to that, but I'm talking about when we hear Freddie's lipless voice. Oh, say we- yes, 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 yes. <coughs> Sorry. Yes, uh, he actually says Will Graham set me up. Uh, yeah, or whatever he says. Yeah. Um, okay. That's that. That's so. Yeah. I, I just there's another to- one later that that will. Okay, we'll get to that in the next chapter. But that was. Okay. Um. Uh yeah, That's and I guess it. I felt I felt well, bad for Freddie. I felt bad for Wendy. Wendy, that was who I was gonna bring up. Is apparently Freddie Lowndes has a prostitute girlfriend. I couldn't. Well, we meet. met her earlier. She called him Roscoe. Right. I don't remember meeting her. It's been oh, yeah. so long. Briefly. She liked to hang. Was out she with a him. prostitute? Or was that some just slur that someone was using? I think it's. I think she could have been, and Freddie was fine with it. There's something. There was something shady about how. She made money. I'm not sure what it was. Hmm. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, uh, Freddie Lowndes is uh, gone. Uh, do you have anything else to say in this chapter? I do not. Let's move on to... Chapter 23. Summary. Will and Jack discuss the situation with Chicago PD Captain Osborne. They discuss what the Tooth Fairy would need to accomplish the spectacle of Freddie Lowndes' death. Then they get a call from the Tattler... Freddie Lounce has called and said something about the Great Red Dragon. What? How could he do that? <laughs> I mean, we, we know. Okay, listener, if you're if you're not reading and you're just listening, uh, it, while, the last thing that happens in the chapter, or the last thing previous? that happens in the chapter bef- in the previous chapter where uh, Freddie's in the basement before his lips are cut off, the the Tooth Fairy forces him to read prepared statements like into a microphone or into a recorder of some kind. So my deduction suggests that that's what that's the call. I think I think your deduction is reasonable. My I have a note in this chapter on page 235. Okay. Which is the one where it's sort of made clear that when Will Graham in the photograph with Freddie Lowndes puts his hand on Freddie Lowndes, he sort of non-verbally suggests that he's in control of Freddie, which is true in this circumstance. And and the Tooth Fairy picks up on that non-verbal cue, and I I believe it's suggested here that that Will may have almost deliberately set that up to bait great red dragon as uh with 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 lounge as a pet because they make a note that in his pattern the uh the the tooth fairy kills the family pets first to watch them find the pet he likes to watch them discover the thing he's taken from them first and then kill them okay i have a couple of responses sure 
First of all, uh, what you said a second ago, people who are just listening and not reading along, we should make it clear for them that this is the photo that accompanied the staged article in ah, the Tadler. Yes, yeah, sorry. Thank you. No, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't bring it up either. Um, to, to that, that the tooth fairy himself was so angry about. Second of all, I think that's an amazing observation. I did not pick up on that. That Lowndes was the pet. I just assumed uh, Will's hand on his shoulder meant that there was some kind of affection that he could get to Will to that. But I, I didn't, I didn't make the connection of the uh, analogy of the pet. I think that's pretty insightful. I thought it was just in the book. But they said that? Yeah, I think so. They used the word pet? Yeah. Well, then I take it back. I mean, I'm insightful. <laughs> no. <laughs> I need it. I need your approval. I'm also a good reader. Graham quoted in a monotone, Tooth Fairy, Graham set me up. The C word knew it. Graham set me up. C, C word put his hand on me in the picture like a fucking pet. Osborne could not tell how Graham felt about it. He asked another question. He was talking about the picture of you and him and the Tatler. Had to be. Where would he get that idea? Lowndes and I had a few run-ins. But you looked friendly towards Lowndes in the picture. The Tooth Fairy kills his pets first. Is that it? That's it. The Stone Fox was pretty fast, Graham thought. Too bad you didn't stake him out. Graham said nothing. Well, sure. I mean, if you read the book... Other than it being completely and implicitly spelled out, it was really insightful on your part. <laughs> I okay, I, I in good conscience couldn't take credit for that. No, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Um And because I do like deconstructing the show, do you think Will putting his hand on Freddy is the genesis of the idea that he could be trained to be a wolf? No, I think the idea of him being trained to be a wolf is the whole th- is the metaphor of what Hannibal's doing to him. No, I understand that. But I'm saying, did Brian Fuller read that part and go, ah, I've got an idea for a show? Oh. Um, mm, you can say no. I don't. I mean, I think there's so much more. Like, I'm just trying to grasp <laughs> me at straws after you blew my mind with that pet thing that was right there in front of me. I guess I could be more generous with my uh, credibility life drafts. Thank you. That's all I'm asking. But I won't. Oh. Desperation is the mind killer. <laughs> Please like me. Um, my, but, but I think the thing that's more interesting to me right now, that, not more interesting, uh, the, the most interesting thing about that thing we're discussing is the idea of did Will Graham do that on purpose? Like, not just the whole suggesting the pet thing. Right. Non-verbally, but the suggestion of Lowndes being his pet with the knowledge and the understanding of the killer's pattern. And if in doing that, why didn't see, there's my, my thought is I, I feel like there's a part of me that's like, yes, he must've, but then there's another part of like, but that last line about like, why didn't you have somebody watching him? That's what makes me think it wasn't because like, if that was the case, all the setup they have for will, if, if they had that much insight into this guy's killing methods, sure. They should have had that, all those people surrounding Freddie fucking lounge. And then they would have just fucking caught him. So I, I can't believe it was deliberate. I think it's an after effect will going, oh shit, I did do that and I'm I I kind of fucked up here. And well, but I mean it's probably gonna keep him up at night. Did I some part of me do that on purpose? Yeah. And that's I mean 
we always have those parts that that are doing shit even if it's against our better judgment or our even you know super ego however that breaks down but right. uh that's just another mental dagger in his collection of self-harm <laughs> that one got away from me <laughs> it would well it would be really upsetting or, or sad if after the the chapter where he tells Willie that it's the that killing someone's the ugliest thing you you can do, um, or one of the ugliest things in the world, I think is what mm-hmm. he says. And that's another part of it. Is it makes me feel like he like I think I think my interpretation of this section of the book is being colored quite a bit by the depiction of Will Graham in the show, and mm-hmm. the idea that Will Graham in the show needs to be either a fucking murderer, or he needs people to believe he is. Right. Um, and I feel like because I like that depiction of the character so much that I want to see it here. And I just I'm, I'm trying really hard to let the book be its own story and be its own sure. book and and appreciate that. I feel like I'm projecting. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, I just don't think that I don't really think this Will Graham would have done that. Gotcha. OK. Do you have any notes in this chapter? Uh, no other notes, no. Well, then advance us, good sir. Chapter 24. Summary. Dr. Chilton strips Hannibal's cell of books as punishment for helping the Tooth Fairy. Molly's planning to leave the safe house and travel with her son to his grandparents' house in Oregon. That's his father's parents' house. Will gets drunk in his hotel room and fantasizes about knowing the Red Dragon better, knowing him well enough to catch him. I don't have any notes in this chapter. Um, I, I am still really enjoying all of the uh, procedural stuff. The um, the breaking down of the paint with the chromatograph or the spectrograph. Um, that was that was I found it fascinating, even though it's you know forty year old technology. Um, hmm. Will lost his dogs. Yeah, that feels sad. It was sad. Because she had to leave the home and there was no one to watch them and they didn't know how long they were going to be. And so she's like, yeah, I'm just going to have uh, the pound come get him. And he's just like, fuck. It's my dogs. And then when Will's trying to see the dragon, he mentions it feels like a presence, like a sha- a presence, like a shadow suspended on dust. Yeah, I was thinking about that as a go ahead. Oh, another 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 great line used in the show. I was thinking about that. Um, I don't really know why this is the case, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk out of my ass a little bit here. Okay, let's hear that ass talk. Um, I've only ever seen the first three Halloween films, but I know that for some reason, at some point, the Michael Myers character, I believe, gets referred to as the Shape. Mm-hmm. Or is the first least, one? Is it? I think, um, I, I, like in the script? Yes. Yeah, I think that and, was the first and, one. And even in like the, the credits, I believe uh, certain actors are credited for playing the shape. Gotcha. And it, and I don't know what the point of that is in the in the movie. I don't know if that's a, a, an allusion to something else or, or, or whatever. But it made me think about this idea of, or I compared it in my own head to this idea of when you're trying to profile a criminal. And you don't, you don't know who they are, but you know what they do. Right. Right. So right. what the shape of them is made up of their actions mm-hmm. and the information they leave behind. And you sort of get to like sketch out in the negative space, the thing that they absolutely are 
but those are done in such broad strokes that it doesn't give you much de- definition mm-hmm. for who for who they are. You know what they are, but not who they are. And so I thought, you know, when you're drawing or you're sketching, like you're making a shape. And if you're looking to identify a person and, and put them into that shape, um, which is what Will Graham's trying to do in this in this scene, like it it makes sense to see them as sort of like a a shadow, like a like a shadow being. Like a, a dark, sort of blobby, like you know, sure, featureless the creature of of fear and and death, and it made me wonder how much of that understanding of that monster, that that idea of the unknown creature monster, or the 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 slasher even, is consciously aware of that idea. Like how many people who have written. Oh, I see. Stories about this thing. Think about it like that, like 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 Thomas Harris says, John. Right, or, or or like specifically when you're writing about it, to deliberately leave details out because less information is scarier. Right. And and like anyway, I just uh, I just no, it's 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 fascinating. I don't know if he approached it like this is a cool writing device, or if he approached it like this must be what some kind of profiler thinks like as they try to piece together like in their mental like when you don't have a police sketch artist but you have like the different eyes and the noses and the mouths and you try to put them together to make the face that's kind of what Will does and there's got to be a point where all you have is this blank face and you're trying to come up with something to put on it that's that's what he's doing so yeah I don't know which way he got there but it is a really profound observation yeah, it's a really cool, especially way to visualize that reality of what it is to search for a person based on nothing more than their behavior. Right. Or the consequences of their actions. Anyway, it's And the behavior they keep hidden too, so even right, harder right. to find them. Right. But that's apparently what Will's so good at as a right. as an eptograph or whatever he's called. I'm just gonna keep calling it the wrong thing. You don't have to worry about correcting me. I dedicate. Are you ready to go to the next chapter? I am, and that chapter is chapter twenty five. Summary. This chapter chronicles the life of Francis Dollarhide and his family. His mother sent him to an orphanage after seeing his cleft palate as soon as he was born. His father, a drunk, was absent from his life and died shortly after Francis's birth. His grandmother learned her grandson was living in an orphanage and adopted him, worked with him on pronunciation and, his, and to overcome his speech impediment, and brought him to his mother, who promptly rejected him uh, and in instead choosing her new family that's a real quick and dirty uh, description of this this chapter um i have a couple notes (laughs) i my my very first note uh as soon as we hit this chapter i i remembered it was coming up and i knew that like this chapter and the next chapter maybe some others detail young francis dollarhide's life and my question is will it hold up so what do you think as a, as well, a backstory for for a serial killer. Fuck, I don't. I didn't think about it like that. I don't know yet. Like it's sure. certainly it's certainly like a lots of abuse happens in this chapter or in these two chapters, and uh, I'll definitely talk about that. But is it enough to make someone a serial killer? Not. I mean, that's that's such a very specific thing. You know what? I want to reframe what I said because I feel like that's how I used to approach these chapters. Oh, okay. 
Um, How would you like, like to approach I, them? I, I would read these and be like, is that enough to make him a serial killer? And then I'd move on. But this time, I felt like I had a way more empathy for him. And I'm just, all I could, all I was reading this time through was just a very sad tale of a little boy that was just used by people at the best of times. That's my, my overall note on these, on these chapters is that I, I, uh, you ever, they're, they're really good feel bad chapters. Yeah. They, they, they they are very well-written chapters that do nothing but make you as the reader feel fucking horrible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he does a great job of that. I was very impressed with Thomas Harris's, uh, ability to do that in these chapters. Um, but at the same time, like I didn't like them because, <laughs> um, I didn't expect them. Okay. And, and what I, what I mean by that is I did not expect to read horrific tales of child abuse in this book like i expected a certain amount of horrific shit like sure. like freddie lounge getting his, t his lips ripped off don't care uh freddie lounge getting burned alive on a on a wheelchair that he's lacquered to don't care uh whatever uh, a lady having a piece of glass shoved in her labia whatever um it's it's like oh that's passe fine whatever i've, I've seen i've seen the show i've seen you know terrible stuff this stuff with francis as a child was the most a little boy was, who just wants to be loved exactly it was the worst shit i've read <laughs> in a long time awful. because it's oh. so upsettingly like abusive it's that thing where you want to reach into this book and save this kid yeah from the and 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 you can't because it's fucking fictional but also like it here's the thing it's the kind of chapter that may i, I we should let me let me let me go over some of the things that happens to this kid first. Sure. Because, it, because I, I feel mean, like that's not... important. Yeah. Go for it. Oh, it's fucking horrible. Um, so I, I went over the brief summary, the more in-depth summary, it, the bullet points here are that, uh, Francis's mother I was, I believe like a teenager when she was giving birth to him. That sounds fair. Or, or, she was, or, or married and married the wrong guy, but she was but, young. But she, she was, was definitely young. like living with her mother at the time too, and that's why she couldn't go home to him because her because her mom kicked her out once she was pregnant or whatever. Sure, and she couldn't go back. That was a part of the the notion. But her 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 baby daddy was also gone. He's apparently a musician that liked to be gone, and uh, so she gives and gives birth, and the baby comes out and has a problem with its face. It's it has a. A uh, cleft palate, severe cleft uh, palate, a, 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 such a severe cleft palate that he can't suckle. He can't wrap his lips around a teat or a, a nipple on, on like a bottle to nurse, and he's going to die. And but for the grace of a hospital worker who chose to help him somehow, found a way to like seal off his mouth and, and to get him to like get water or like milk through a straw or some Probably shit. Milk, yeah they were able to like keep him alive. Um, great job. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> and, and then, ev and eventually they bring the baby to his mother. She sees him and she lets out a scream of terror at, at the sight of him because he's that monstrous, which again, I want to point out in an earlier episode, I talked about how I did not like that characterization of like, 
a person who is demonized because, or like, I don't like the idea of, I'm sidetracking here, but I don't like the idea of a character who's suffers the abuse of their physical deformity that leads them to become a horrible monster is I don't like that because I feel like people with physical disabilities, I would argue they can't, you can't hide it. Yeah. So like, so, so you, and you're and there's going to be children are terrible. And so when you grow up as a person with a physical difference, it's going to be addressed. It's going to be identified and it is no way to avoid it. So my argument is most people who have, whose physical difference becomes a noteworthy part of their growing up experience. The thing that sets them apart and, and becomes, and, and becomes a lightning rod for attention. There, most of them don't grow up to become fucking serial killers. True. And yet they undergo and endure trauma and bullying and shit like that. Uh, and including, but, and also like it's this description of the world is so fucking dismal that like there's there's so little silver lining in the world that Francis Dolahide grows up in that mm. I I'm privileged enough to feel like it's fictional. I know it's not. I know that there are people who endure shit like this. I'm not even saying that this is hyperbolic. I everything that happens to him, I believe a person has undergone. Yes, fair. Or to true. some degree. And so like I get that he is fictional and that he's experiencing fictional trauma, but I know that it speaks more about to how lucky I am to have the reflex of, Oh, this is just bullshit. Nothing could be this bad. And it's like, no, it fucking is for some people. And that makes this even worse. But the part that I don't like, so I can, I can come to terms with all of that. I can rationalize, around my own emotional re- reaction to these chapters and these acts. What I don't like is that there's so few people in his life at all who are even remotely kind to him. Mm-hmm. That's the part that feels like it is a little bit too far. Like there's gotta, I, anyway, I don't, there's a part of me that still has hope for a fucking humanity that believes sure. that there would be someone who would be, have the wherewithal to be fucking, decent I mean, I, to this child i guess there was the cook at the at the uh at the home yeah and you could make the argument that the person who saved his life as an infant yeah but so he's not gonna have any memory of that right so his mother screams when he's born when after when she sees him first time sends him back sends him to an orphanage during that time his uh she's trying to make a better life for herself on her own uh, eventually is working towards marrying up and becoming a politician's wife. Somewhere in that process, her ex-husband, whose, whose marriage she had annulled, Francis's father comes back and tries to be, get back in, in her life and start a family back together with their child. She wants nothing to do with him, tells him that the kid's dead. He comes back again. Eventually she says, fine, the kid's not dead, but he has a horrific cleft palate. And uh, he's not the only one, and he definitely got it from your side of the family. Now, I took that to mean that he has a cleft palate, that her, that Francis's father did. Okay, maybe. And then he gets drunk, calls her mom, tells the grandmother about the baby, and then promptly gets hit by a car. 
and dies. Bisected by a streetcar. Yeah. <laughs> and an uh, interesting little bit of color. Yeah. Um, and so the grandmother having, I guess, we're, it, it's so contradictory, but having, we're led to believe some um, shred of decency in her being, which apparently evaporates at nighttime, is goes to the orphanage and finds the kid and he's brought in and introduced to her. He still has the cleft palate. He is, you know, and he looks, you said, like you said before, he's a small five-year-old innocent, just looking to be loved. Pathetic little creature is brought in and she, and there's a fucking couple of lines in here that break my heart. And this is one of them. I don't exactly know. I kind of want to find it because it's so fucked. Um, so is it when he's a baby? No, it's the one where... Because um, <laughs> I've got... The first one I have was when he was a baby. Oh, I think that might be before... Well, there was one... I'm trying to find it. Um, it's something about uh, the way she looks at him. Yeah, here it is. So, no, this is not... This is when he's five. So, what's the one when he was a baby, Rob? Okay. So, just, just to keep it chronological, uh, the hospital staff, when he was born, they don't even show him to the mother first because he looks so severe yeah and they put him in the back of the baby ward and just kind of say well let's see if he just even lives and leave him to his own devices and thomas wrote the crying on the first day was not as continuous as that of a heroin addicted baby but it was as piercing and that just fucking got the ball rolling you're just like yeah "Ah." yeah so the line here that is really hit me hard here we go The lady waiting with Brother Buddy was tall and middle-aged, dredged in powder, her hair in a tight bun. Her face was stark white. There were touches of yellow in the gray hair and in the eyes and teeth. What struck Francis, what he would always remember. She smiled with pleasure when she saw his face. That had never happened before. No one would ever do it again. I want to take this moment to reflect on your uh, comment about her having a shred of decency because this chapter is told a little out of order and we find out when Francis's mother grandma's daughter betters her life uh, mm, yes the grandmother's gonna lose the house right and comes to her and pleads for help and money but because she was so awful um and you know misery begets misery. Uh, the daughter completely ignores her. And I feel like it's not a shred of decency when she goes and finds this kid that the drunk guy on the phone told her was deformed and she sees how bad it is. She's like, I can use this to ruin my daughter's life. That's all that ever was. Wow. Yeah. Well, she, it, I don't know if it, I don't know how much it ruined the daughter's life, but it definitely fucked this kid up. Um, well, but bringing him to the rallies. Oh, say, right, like, right. Like, like this is the politician's wife's, you know, other son that she's trying to ignore and that's why he lost yeah so after this moment though <laughs> where he, he says that it had never he would remember it because it had never happened before and it would never happen again there's also this uh horrifying moment the premise here is that the this little kid this is still the same scene where she's gazing on him nicely for the first time this little kid is about to be adopted. And, and, and I, I everything I've ever read about Batman or Annie suggests that kids who are about to get adopted are so fucking psyched that they will do anything to just get adopted. And so I felt like that was part of what this kid was 
doing. Sure. He wants to perform. He wants to satisfy this person so that they will take him out of this fucking hellhole he's in. And uh, so he practices saying hello to her, but he's got the deformity, the, the speech impediment that stops him from being able to say it. So he sort of sort of utters a whole I don't even know how to do the it's L H H O. I don't even know how to vo- verbalize that in a way that would work. I or even try to pronounce it, but he tries to say hello uh, with an impediment. And, and then for some reason they try to get him to say grandmother. And it's a, it's a rule of three thing. Cause I think, I don't know if it's a joke, but it's a fucking three thing. It, it's there's three things he tries to say. And I, and that's the part that makes me, I think the most upset is because I can see the joke pattern. And then the punchline isn't a punchline in, except that my soul's punched. I, I, I feel like it, there's gotta be a word for it. There's, I I've noticed in the last couple of years that there is a very similar delivery to horror and comedy or tragedy and comedy. Everything kind of revolves on a turn. You know, like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Now I have to think about shit. And so I definitely think it's using a joke structure. I don't think it's trying to be funny per se. Okay, I can accept that. I I think it is supposed to make the, like you, go, oh, fuck, which you did. And I did. So he tries to say grandmother. He doesn't succeed. And then from there on, I'll just read it because then it's not my words. Trigger warning for bad words. Try to say grandmother, buddy said. The plosive G defeated him. Francis strangled easily on tears. A red wasp buzzed and tapped against the ceiling. Never mind, his grandmother said. I'll just bet you can say your name. I just know a big boy like you can say his name. Say it for me. The child's face brightened. Mm. The big boys had helped him with this. He wanted to please. He collected himself. face he said. So that was the first, really like the first moment where I was like emotionally crushed Mm -hmm. by this book. And then I got, I got kind of angry with it because like I said before, I didn't expect to read this. Right. Like there's a certain, I feel like there's a certain level of expectations that you go into reading a book and there's certain things you are, you're comfortable being surprised by. Right. This was not that like, I'm, I'm not, angry <laughs> but i am like it's i would these aren't okay when i was a little kid uh, these aren't books i like to read when i was a little kid my mom went through a stage where she got really interested in reading stories like this okay i don't i don't i'm, I'm probably gonna fuck it up but there were like uh there was a book i believe called a child called it yep i think my mom read it too right and uh, I don't really remember exactly what that book was about, but my memory is, is it was about a fucking abused child mm-hmm. and it was about like horrible child abuse. And, and it was the same sort of feeling this like child who just desperately wants to be loved is met with nothing but scorn and violence and hatred and how awful that is. And it, like I said, it was, it, it's like a good feel bad thing right which is not my style of shit um (laughs) so like and i think there was a couple others like i don't remember exactly what the situation with that book was and i don't want to revisit it no that's completely fair but i i think there was and if it wasn't that one there was another one about a kid who was like a burn victim 
And oh, dude, there's so many. There's 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 a, a a depressing amount of those books. There's When Rabbit Howls, which is fucking harrowing. Cool. Don't don't look it up. I don't want to. Uh, yeah, no, it's when you when you see the breadth of the true life, you know, stories out there, it's a wasteland. It's fucking pass. Emotion. Yeah. So so uh, there's that, and then like, and then another one happens before the book's over and i i genuinely don't remember if it's in this one or the next one. Oh, it's in the next chapter um well i mean i had instant i think i've talked about it before but i had instant uh empathy for this that specific scene yeah sorry i was agreeing that i too was struck with no. a lightning bolt of empathy um because i had something in that vein happen to me oh wow I think I think we've mentioned it. I used to have a lot of problems being attentive in class. Got a lot of notes home, and one day got a note home, and on the bus gave it to a kid who could read cursive, and he told me that it was a note full of praise, mm. and that I did really good as opposed to how oh, I'd usually been. Fuck. And when I handed it over, incredibly <laughs> bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and so happy with myself, uh, I think my mom actually cried that oh, time because fuck. it was just one note too many. That sucked. Oh, dude. Fuck that kid. Yeah, fuck that kid. I mean, most like, I mean, obviously nowhere near as bad, but I, I, I can under, I can, I can empathize because of that. No, there's nothing as a kid, regardless of what the. I mean, okay, obviously there's a sliding scale on severity. <laughs> yes. But the, but the like, the, the, the structure of the heartbreak. Mm-hmm is something that like is the thing that is the is the unforgivable thing where like it's that thing of the betrayal it's not just the shame or the disappointment it's the you were set up yeah and like what you were set up for was heartbreak like that's not a joke it's not funny it'd be like saying like if someone said to me hey Doug, you should, you should, uh, I heard your boss was looking for you. You know, it's that time of year where people are getting raises and I heard him saying good things. And then you go in there and then you get fired. And it's like, (laughs) well, that was, well, first off, fuck you person. Um, because now, because that wasn't nice. That was not nice. By the way, that that didn't, that never happened to me. Uh, It's not a, not a super good comparison either but the point is like the structure of the of the betrayal is the part that makes it so bad the the youthful exuberance for praise and acceptance and and success being met by ridicule and or abject failure is it's tragic and i uh that sucks man It, it, it it but you know happy postscript at least for me my mom later came around to the idea that that teacher was just a horrible person and demanded too much of six-year-olds, and I was her special boy. <laughs> yeah, and that's why you were promoted to exceptional kindergarten or whatever the fuck you insist that was. This, this would, in fact, be the class that I talked oh, about. Oh, no. This would be pre-first. Holy shit, pre-first. <laughs> oh. I only got three weeks of kindergarten, man. Yeah. That's sure. why I'm so childlike. I didn't get to roll snakes and finger paint for, for a whole year like everyone else. Yeah, you... Uh, I got put into a desk right away. I got put into the system. Yeah. Damn the man. Special little boy. 
<laughs> anyway, I need attention. That's the point. Well, it seems true. Um, I don't remember what else really happens in this chapter because these two bleed together for me. They do. In, we can, in we the can, worst let's, way. let's, let's move on. All right, let's advance to chapter 26. Okay, here's another summary. Get ready for it sounding the same. Uh, this chapter delves deeper into Francis Dollarhide's history as a bedwetter and abuse victim. Uh, I don't even really want to recap what happens in this chapter because it's so masterfully heartbreaking. Yeah. That's what I wrote. Um, so, but we should. Uh, this is another one of those, like, fucking horrible sequences, which has me really nervous about the next chapter in the start of the next section because it's i think it's also a recap of his past i will say from my vague memories of the book this was the set piece fucking hope so this is i don't like it (laughs) so i think everything else might just be details i'm not sure i I don't want to promise you that i don't want to set you up for that fucking fine anyway so the (laughs) um the kid ends up uh not the last chapter is when her, his mom's husband lost the election, right? Right. I think uh, Yeah, I think so. So now, Francis lives with his grandma, who's taken in elderly boarders to pay the rent, or to pay her mortgage, or whatever it is. And uh, so now Francis, I think that's happened right now, right? Or is that like, it is, it is. And and there's a fun, there's a there's one of Thomas Harris's fun descriptions in the midst of all this misery, and that is to five-year-old Francis... Uh, all these old people were a forest of blue-veined legs. Yeah. I like that. Good. That was nice. Okay, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> so the thing, the horrific shit that happens in this chapter is uh, at one night, uh, Francis is in his bed sleeping and he's got to go pee. And he doesn't get up to go to the bathroom for one reason or the other. I can't really Scared recall. Scared of the dark, I think. Sure. Maybe he didn't know the direction. Uh, I, it seems like, I, I honestly couldn't tell if this was the same night as he gets rejected by his mom. Because, okay, I guess we should clarify. In the last chapter, there was another fucked up thing that happened before we and we go into this one for the, the needing to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. His grandmother teaches him how to say mother, or they work on saying mother. And as Rob brought up, she, she brings him to her daughter's home, unbeknownst to her daughter, and and sends him upstairs, this tiny little baby boy, five-year-old kid again desperate to be loved desperate for acceptance and doesn't know why the world would reject him and treat him so poorly as it as it has but still has like a shred of hope that he will that he, that, that someone out there could love him she sends him upstairs to talk to his mom while the grandmother just like gets food downstairs from one of the servants or something so he walks into the the room where his mom's doing her makeup at a vanity and the mom isn't looking at him she doesn't even know he's there and he starts to speak and he says like he tries to get out his version of the word mother which again not very clear and she says something like oh are you looking for some other child uh i think he went across the street or something like that and this little kid i mean it's so vivid in my fucking mind it's like a horrible heartbreaking cartoon he like sort of takes a couple steps forward more into the room to be a little bit closer to her hands sort of ringing in his hand and his fingers ringing in his hands sort of looking down like at the ground and sort of like sheepishly looking up at her in her general direction and says you know mother again a couple again there's this horrific heartbreak of of a child 
And then that's when she sort of stops putting on her makeup, realizes what's happening. I don't even think she looks at him. And she's like, stands up, turns the light off of the vanity and like walks into the darkness and just sort of like sobs. It sounds right. Yeah. And then the kid like just kind of leaves. Like I think the grandmother just sort of collects him and then they fucking leave, I guess. And then they go ruin her husband's career. (laughs) And, but just like that, that abject won't even look at you as I disregard you, turn my back on you kind of rejection for a for again a kid who has like imagine never picking up a puppy like i'm not saying you as a person have never picked up a puppy i'm saying imagine having a puppy you never pick up (laughs) you deliberately let beg to be picked up they beg for affection and you just don't like that's what this kid is like to me he's like he's just like this innocent who cannot understand why he's not getting love who gives it freely is, is so open and ready for it, but isn't getting it. And, and there's, it it won't understand why can't understand why. Oh, it sucks. So (laughs) (laughs) this episode, make it cry. Yeah. So there's another one though, that's coming along. Let's get, let's get that to the pee pants one. Um, (laughs) so he's in his bed, right? And he's got to go pee pee. And it's the middle of the night and it's dark and it's scary. So he calls for his grandmother. She doesn't come. He calls for her again. She she doesn't hear him. She's asleep down the hall. Suddenly he's urinated in the bed all over his nightgown. And he's cold now. He cover, soaked in urine. So he gets up and he goes out of the hall. Like tries to leave his room, but it's dark. And he slips as he gets to the door. Smashes his face right around his eye on the doorknob. Cuts himself. He's bleeding down his face now. Again, I think for we are supposed to believe he's basically still five years old. Sounds so right. If, if you've ever met a five-year-old, you know how small and they are and what they look like and how innocent they are. So he finally opens the door and he sort of like gingerly finds his way to his grandmother's room, still soaked in urine, finds her bed, crawls into the covers and, and like curls up with her bleeding and covered in urine, cold urine. And there's a fucking line in this goddamn book. (laughs) All right. Uh, The doorknob caught him over the eye and he sat down in, in wetness, jumped up and ran down the stairs, fingers squealing on the banister to his grandmother's room, crawling across her in the dark and under the covers, warm against her now. The warm against her now line is the part that gets me because... Again, it's sort of like it symbolizes this idea of comfort. The, this the thing least he, amount of comfort he can get the, from the, her. Yeah, exactly. He's already cut, wounded, bleeding, and piss-soaked. And he's just like, if, she's just warm and isn't that nice. She's like, I know I'm not getting a hug, but this is something. Yeah, and like, and it's so brief, that moment <laughs> of like respite, of like, of the slightest amount of comfort is there. And then she wakes up and is like throws the covers off and is like disgusted by him and takes him upstairs. Uh, shoves him. I think she shoves him in, into the bedroom in the dark still, and he just sort of stands there and still in his clothes, wet and 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 alone for a couple of minutes. And then she comes back with fresh clothes or f- fresh sheets, changes the sheets, takes him to the bathroom, takes his night clothes off, like cleans him up as best she can, asks him about the wound over his eye and asks him if he broke anything, and then like 
closes it, like bandages it somehow. And then, then the thing happens where she, uh, the kindest way I can put this is that she scolds him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what she does is she's trying to tell him how to not pee the bed anymore. And she, so she does is she, uh, he's naked. (sighs) I feel, I feel guilty describing this book. Um, she, he's naked. And she takes his, uh, she takes his little, his, uh, his little penis. And she just sort of like gently puts it between some scissors and then like closes the scissors on his little penis just enough to like pinch it. And then that, you know, I, for those of our penis listeners, uh, that sounds awful, right? <laughs> I think for anyone that sounds awful, but yes, that's what you're saying. Yeah, but like if you don't, if you already don't have a penis, like if I if I was someone who didn't have a penis, I'd be like, Phew, saved by the bell. Like I don't have to worry about that. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, she puts his little penis in in the scissors, and uh, saying that, <laughs> and uh, and he starts sobbing and drooling and freaking out because you know. Uh, why is this? What fucking fresh hell is this? Um, she asks him if he wants her to cut it off, and completely reasonably, he says no. And she says, "Well, when you have to pee in the middle of the night, come in here. You don't even have to worry about turning the light on. Just climb up on the toilet and sit on the toilet and pee." Don't even like have if, to stand like, up. She offers. don't even have to stand up. You can just be a good boy and sit and pee. And uh, if you don't, I'm going to cut your penis off. <laughs> and so that's fucked up. Um, and that's the line where I was like, where I was like, I had the, this more than the others was the one where I was like, I had the urge to go Thomas. You've jumped the shark, my friend. Uh, this is too awful for me to believe it could happen. Right. Uh, but no, nah, uh, I had to check myself. That's what I mean. I had to check my privilege of not being abused like this as a child and realize, which fucking sucks to, to think about how that's a privilege um, or at least like a blessing. Yeah. And. I had to think about like, you know, there's a lot of people, maybe not a lot, but there's a non-zero sum number of people who've experienced something like this, like a horrific level of physical abuse that would make me in the, in the, in the blessed position I've grown up in shudder and Mm -hmm. cringe Mm -hmm. if I heard about it. And so in a sense, that's almost worse than reading this section is the realization that it isn't as fancy. Like the thing about the Hannibal TV show is all of those grisly, brutal creature effects and murders that they, they do. Obviously those are fictional. Like those, right. th- th- nobody makes angels, you know what I mean? Out, out of yeah. people or at least not to that degree, like fucking, yeah. 
there's certain there's a couple guys who did some weird shit, but like <laughs> is it's not as prolific as sure. child abuse. So, sure. um, but that I had to check myself and go like it's fucking so much. This is at least this is fake. <laughs> uh, and again, not what I want to read in no. a book, really. And then I, I think the chapter kind of ends. My I think I may have just stopped like list reading. I mean, I know I finished the chapters. I just I mean we I don't remember to, anything else. So we come back to present day Bill. Uh, Bill? Present present day Francis. What's he doing? Oh yeah, you're right. He's like in his bed sucking his thumb. Um and I mean my last note about this section is uh now he's being written about in present tense. Oh, interesting. Which is interesting. Maybe he's becoming. Maybe he is becoming. Mm, clever. I almost wanted to ask you if we could read one more chapter of this book, because I had a suspicion that the next one would be bad, too, and I was like, I just want to band-aid it and just get it over with. But we didn't. But then, hey. No. <laughs> that, 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 was not, that would not be a silver lining. Never mind. Yeah, so... Do you have any more notes? No, I have no more notes. Cool. Uh, I also don't have any more notes. I didn't. I didn't like. I know I said it, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't like that. I, I think. I think you've made your case. Yeah. Um, I can't. I can't wait to get back to reading about the guy who just wants to murder people. <laughs> <laughs> I will say. I. I. I, I believe harrowing child abuse is over but the book may find other ways to break your heart cool love it (laughs) can't wait all right i do have one new word this is a word i read in this book so you better better pay attention okay pismire pismire or pismire Pissmeyer. I want to say it's a clam? Wow. Interesting. Wrong, but oh. interesting. Okay. What is it's a Pissmeyer? It's an ant. Oh. That's all it says. Okay. Um, I have a new word. Oh, no. I do not have a... Text-to-speech? The text-to-speech definition. Okay. I could not even find a proper definition of it. Oh, wow. Okay, great. This is going to be great for the game. This word is identiker. Okay. Uh, it's a person who has a distinct visual memory. Um... Well, so now you're close. <laughs> the root word, eidetic, does mean that. Uh, people who have eidetic memory, it's, it's usually the the more fancy scientific word for Photographic memory. Ah, okay. But an identiker, at least according to this book, this one blog post, which also references this book, and a couple other similar sources, say that identiker, from the word eidetic, used in conjunction with memory to describe an ability to recall something in great detail, can refer to a person who can see through the eyes of another. Mm. And so someone who is really good has, you know, I don't know, almost perfect empathy. Right. As if perception was a tool pointed on both ends. So I don't know if that's so just an think... archaic word that's fallen out of use or what, but... 
So it's, you don't think it's a word that Thomas Harris made up? I'm not sure. I honestly, I don't know. Nothing else he, in that sense he's made up. Not Yeah, no. Red Dragon fingerprint powder. Second chance vests. Yeah, right? Like, he's got a, plenty of opportunity to world build, and he just builds in our own world. Yep. Which is perhaps why it sits so sourly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I don't really have anything else, do you? No, I do not. All right, well, uh, I think we have three more episodes in this book. So next time, we're going to read chapters 27 which, you know, should not be surprising to anyone, through chapter 34. Let's see if some new characters are introduced. What? You think so? Uh, this yeah, it might happen. Weird. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, well, that was Death Readers. I'm Doug. I'm Rob. Thanks for listening. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. These reviews help new listeners find us and join the discussion. Follow us on Twitter and like our new Facebook page for Death Readers News. Become a patron at Patreon slash Death Readers. And please discuss us extensively on Reddit. Check, check, I'm recording. Check, check, I'm recording. Slovak, Slovak. Slovox, Slovox. Oh, it's pretty good. Thanks. I just, uh, you know, that's that's how quick I am. Yep, that's some, or that's some Latin. How slow I am. Oh, you're slow like gin. Slow like molasses seeping out of a dead doe's mouth. What? Why is there molasses in the doe's mouth? Because she was too sweet to live. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. No, but it was still funny. It's like if I said, doe a deer, a sweet dead deer, we'd all laugh, right? I just oh, really? did. That feels stupid. I, I, I thought we were going now to I feel not dumb. laugh. And just, yeah, no, you should like, feel dumb. I feel like ruined I ruined it. your bit by you laughing did. at it. <laughs> it's supposed to be like a meta examination of the concept of humor, and you fucked it up. And I, I, maybe, maybe it's not that I fucked it up. Maybe it's that my humor palette is so well refined that <laughs> I can only be brought to joy by the concept of the lack of joy. okay well i guess this is gonna be the surreal episode i guess it's one of those nights i'm trying to get rid of these boxes by selling things on ebay trying to trying to declutter you know what sparks my joy Mm, marie kondo arson it's <laughs> same thing, really. That Do you want, I, me just ble- you want me to just bleep you and you so you can say it, or? I I really am. I'm I'm actively trying to remove this word from my vocabulary. Um, I understand. 
then, then you should do it the same way you did it earlier. Because <laughs> um, it's just like, I, you know, the problem is, the problem is it's a fun word to say, <laughs> but the, the, and that, and that makes it hard to remove from the vocabulary because it has such a, it's such a, such a brief and sharp word, mm-hmm. but like, I don't like how I really feel when I, like, I, I have a, uh, post utterance clarity when I use this word mm-hmm. and I realize, Oh, don't really like it. It didn't go over like it would in England. Well, not even that, but like, oh. I have enough self-awareness to go. I would not like me. Like if I heard me, if I heard someone say that I'd go, fuck that guy. So I don't <laughs> want to be a guy. I don't want to be the guy that I would say, Oh, fuck that guy. Fair. About. Absolutely. Um, Good job. Yeah. So like, Anyway. So hopefully you'll just bleep that part just for me. Just just like as an addendum. Yeah, just beep face. Got it. Got it. I'll leave the C. You can leave the, the you can leave the leave the at least leave the T. Yeah. And the N and probably the U. No, not that much. <laughs> okay. There should be a bleep. Okay. <laughs>